Okay, so in this section that we've been in, and it's been a difficult section because uh, a lot of things have been, been revealed in all of us. Like it, it, Paul has been systematically walking through all of these areas of sin that everyone has. Okay, like, like there's nobody that, that's read these, these chapters and it's like, oh, that's, that's good for them. I hope so-and-so hears this, right? They need this. Uh, Paul's been breaking it down from uh, the Gentiles who were the non-Jews uh, who uh, were in this pagan culture. And, and he's breaking down all of these sins uh, that they're committing, that they're doing. And he labels them, calls them out, addresses it. And then he turns his attention to the religious or, or the moral Jew uh, that, that is there, that is part of his audience. And, and he starts addressing uh, their belief and how they carried themselves, like uh, that they were better than, that they were uh, more worthy of uh, God. And, and for some of them, they literally uh, believed that just because of their heritage as a Jew, they were, they were saved. And, and so we've been unpacking um, all of these different groups of people that uh, were trying to essentially establish the fact that they had a right standing with God based upon either what they did or they didn't do. And Paul is trying to tell us, none of you are right before God on your own. Like, none of you. And so um, he's been continuing to work through that. And in light of what he's just taught in chapter two, and if you remember when, when these letters were brought, they were, they were read publicly, okay? So it wasn't like Paul gets to go there and do like this live Q&A after his teaching. And so what we see here is something very unique that he also does in Acts 17 uh, when he's in Athens. And we see that Paul um, is aware and anticipates that they're going to have some questions in response to chapter 2, in particular his Jewish audience. And so what he does in chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 here is he kind of does this Q&A with himself, so, so he knows, like, uh, he knows these people. He's like, okay, I, I know where this is going to hit. I know the issues you're going to have here. And so anticipating their response, chapter three kicks off by just bringing to light and, and, and speaking out the questions they have. And then he's going to provide answers. And so it's literally like he is sitting there with this imagined reader and verses one through eight answering their questions. So let's pick it up. In Romans chapter three, verse one, it says this. And here's the question by his Jewish audience. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? This is his response. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Next question. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? His response. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Next question. But, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the, the, the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That is unrighteous to inflict, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. The answer, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? Next question. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
his response, or, and they continue in the question, and why not do evil that good may come? His response, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Okay, so these are questions you may or may not have had, but they did. And so Paul is addressing them. And the very first question is, what advantage then does a Jew have? What is our advantage? And, and so Paul's response to that first question after they've read chapter two is, uh, you have great value and you've been given an incredible gift in knowing and having the word of God. And so you need to consider as a Jew that you have this incredible privilege to have the scriptures. Uh, you have been given God's specific revelation. Uh, you, you had the promises, the promises that were made to the patriarchs, the, the promises regarding God's character, the promises about the coming Messiah. You have been blessed and given all of this. The next question was, well, does, does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Uh, in other words, like, you know, we're not measuring up. There's a lot of failures here. There's a lot of Jews that are, that are um, not accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They're not wanting this. Or they're falling away. So does that nullify God's faithfulness? And his response is no. Despite people's failure to believe God's promises, to save are still advancing. See, our faithlessness only reveals how committed to his truth he is. I want you to think about what he's done and continues to do, even though his people demonstrate faithlessness. Over and over again, it says that Christ went to the cross in that while we were still sinners, Christ went to the cross. And, and, and so, uh, you guys, this is, this is like one of those moments where you just pause. And actually, in the first gathering, uh, as we were closing our time in worship, I just kept sitting there and, and I kept going over that phrase there. Does, does, my, does my faithlessness, does that nullify the faithfulness of God? And how often, um, uh, you know, I'll tell you what, when I came to know the Lord, I was, I was just lost. I was a mess. And, and there's so many people, I find, uh, that uh, they, they feel ashamed. They've made a mistake. Maybe it was very public. Maybe there was incredible damage that that mistake, that that sin caused. And they live in this shame. They've been canceled uh, they wear it everywhere they go. And, and, and I think that, that, that we bring into uh, this scripture, we bring that question. We go, I, I've screwed up. Does that cross out God's faithfulness? Am I no longer worthy? Can I no longer receive what he has for me? Am I no longer able to experience the fruit of the spirit, all these things that, I read about, or am I done? Because that's how I feel. That's how people see me. That's how people talk to me. And guys, I want to encourage you. It was never because of your faithfulness that Christ went to the cross for you. It was never because you were worthy. It was never because you were good enough. And his, his 
His faithfulness continues in spite of my faithlessness. And there's so many times in my life, unfortunately, where I would probably characterize how I'm thinking, how I'm acting, and I would correlate it to faithlessness and not faithfulness. And it's in those moments that I need to come back to what uh, the truth of Scripture, what it teaches us, and that, no, uh, in my sinful humanity, in my mistakes, and sometimes they're huge mistakes, God's faithfulness still wins the day. It does not nullify his perfect and sovereign faithfulness or his plan to save, to redeem, and to resurrect so we can be encouraged in that. The, it's interesting too, because Paul in this, he cites Psalm 51.4. And in Psalm 51.4, uh, David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And this is after David has just had this incredible failure, this sin with uh, Bathsheba. And um, after that incident, he's saying God's judgment was blameless, that God is faithful and just in his judgment. So the Jewish listeners are, are, are hearing this. This is their King David, right? So then the next question is this, but, but if unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, how is it fair for him to judge us, right? If, if, if my unrighteousness is helping other people see God's righteousness, why would he judge me? And Paul, like, I don't know. I, I just see in Paul's mind, he just wants to smack them, maybe. I don't know. This whole question, like this thought. Well, hey, so by my unrighteousness, everyone is experiencing God. So why would he then judge me? And Paul is like, you don't believe that for a minute, right? Universally, everybody in this room, I don't care where you say, oh, I love everyone. Like, there are people that you think need to be judged. Amen? Yeah. You're like, no, I would never. I'm glad you're here, okay? Like, that's all of us. There's like none of us that are, that are like, oh God, just bless them. You know, like, no, there's people that were like, God, do it. Like, let's go, like now, you know? And, and he's like, I got this. Step back, right? And, and so we all would admit that there's some of this sin in us. And, and, and we love to try to justify ourselves, don't we? In it. Right? We, we, we've already talked about the thems or the theys. And, 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 and so Paul is like, no, you don't believe that for a minute. That would mean that nobody would be judged and I know you. Okay? So that's not the case. And then they take it a step farther, right? If me sinning makes God look better, shouldn't I just sin more? So that his glory is just more clearly seen. Here's what's crazy though about this. And I want to get to on this train here because Paul is going to specifically address this later on. And the reason is because Paul's ministry was being slandered for that belief. People were saying that's what he was preaching. This grace-based preaching was essentially that, oh, you can just do whatever you want. You should do more of it because 
then the grace of God is just magnified. So, so this is something that, that, that Paul was accused of. And he even says like, man, people are slandering me in this way. And I, I don't believe it. Like, I don't believe what they're saying. And so I think for any of us that are under the impression that if I just continue doing what he doesn't want me to do, he's going to be more glorified. If there's any of us thinking that, oh, we need to be corrected, don't we? You guys, over and over, we're told, I mean, God hates evil. He hates it. We're called to hate evil. And, 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 and so, like, um, he's a just judge. He's going to deal with evil. And, and we're called to never put the Lord to test. And so, just so we're clear, you're never doing God a favor by sinning. Like you're never helping his cause by doing that. Uh, my dad always used to tell me, it's never right to do wrong to get a chance to do right. And, and I remember that clearly, right? And so he's, he's dealing with these questions that he knows they're gonna ask and he's responding to them. And then uh, verses nine, nine through 18, this is what he says. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Whew. You were just struggling when you came in and you went right to those verses. You're now really in a rough spot. So, why does he go down this list here? And man, this is, this is tough to read. It's tough to see that. Well, Paul has told us that we need to have an awareness of sin. And that's, and that's good. We all need to be aware of that. But he says, you, you not only need to understand what it is, you need to understand what sin is going to do in your life. Like I can have, I can, you, you can tell me, hey, Steve, that's dangerous. And I, can, and I can go, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. But until I actually see and believe it's damaging effects on me, it's just up here, right? And so what Paul is saying is, listen, like, like we've called it all out. We, we know it's all there. Uh, regardless of what you're saying you believe and how good you are or aren't, what you need to see though here is the effects that it's going to have on your life. And so that's what he's talking about here in verses 9 through 18. He says, you need to know the problems that are going to be evident in your mind, in your heart, and in your life as a result of sinfulness. And so he states that the first effect of sin is our legal standing before God. He says, no one is legally righteous and no one's deeds can change that. We're, he says, we're guilty and we're condemned. 
That's all of us, right? Uh, Psalm 14.3, it says, they, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And, and, and so what he's communicating here is everyone is under sin. There's no one righteous. And to be under sin and to be unrighteous, he, he's saying these are the same thing here. To be unrighteous is a, is a positional term, right? We, we talked about uh, our standing before God, having right standing with him. And so um, if, if unrighteousness is where I'm at, it means I do not have a right standing with God because I've wronged him. And to be under sin is communicating the same thing. It's saying I'm a citizen of sin. I am under it. And so Paul's statement that, uh, is that, that Jews and Gentiles, uh, whether you are super religious and moral or unreligious and pagan and just pursuing your whatever you want to do, you are both unrighteous and under sin. Now, this doesn't mean that every person is as sinful as every other person. Okay? It means that our legal condition is the same. We're all lost. And there's, there's not like degrees of lostness, as much as we like to say, well, they're really lost. They're only a little lost. No, they're both lost. And so the, the religious person may trust in morality and, and the pagan uh, person that's a Gentile and something else, but neither comes closer to a righteous heart. They are equally lost and equally condemned. And then he, after framing it and saying, like, this is where you're at. You, you, you are not right with God. You're not. Then he states how the sin also affects other areas. He states how our minds are affected by sin. He says, there's no one who understands. In other words, we don't understand God's truth. Uh, Ephesians 4.18, I love how it addresses this. It says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And then he says something really interesting. Due to their hardness of heart. Who? So one of the things that we can say is, well, wait, they don't know. They're just ignorant to it. No one's told them, right? But uh, ignorance doesn't cause a hardness of heart. Hardness of heart causes ignorance. Hardness of heart causes a lack of understanding. So uh, here's what happens. Here's this progression, right? If uh, when my mind is corrupted by sin, what's not of God and wanting to please myself, my motives are what? self-centered. All of my motives are about what I want to do, what I want to achieve, the life I want to have, the direction I want to go in, right? And so uh, when that's the, the desire of my heart, what that's going to lead me to is it's going to lead me to a denial of doing things God's way, right? It, it, it's going to address how I filter God's word in my mind, his direction when he calls me out, his correction, his encouragement, right? Um, because everything is about me. And when it's about me, I become blind 
to God's truths. And so he says, this is going to affect your mind. The next thing is he says, this is going to affect your motives. He says what? No one seeks God. He echoes Isaiah 53, 6, where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Man, that's, that's tough, right? All of us, like sheep, we've gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. And, and what's so important here, what he's talking about when it comes to motives is there is a will, there's a willfulness towards the wandering. Does that make sense? Like it, it, it's active rebelling. It's not like innocent, like, ah, oh, I just wandered off, right? Like uh, some of you had children that were wanderers and it wasn't like malicious. They weren't like, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to see you. I'm going to do my own thing, right? Now we have some of those too, but but no, some of us, we just had wanderers. Like, like my middle child, he was just a wanderer. I'll never forget when he opened the door. We were visiting our friends in Ben, opened the front door to their house. We were on the other side of the house. And all of a sudden, he just walked down the middle of the street and he's just walking. And he wasn't like, he was literally just, like just wandering, right? Like just clueless, right? So, and I was clueless to how fast I still was. But, you know, I got him. And so I think that, one of the things that we need to be aware of is we tend to read this and we go, well, they just don't know or no. And, and what he's breaking down is no. When we live for ourselves and we say yes to, to me and no to his will and his direction and his leading on my life, what will happen is a hard heartedness. And then I will willfully choose to wander in a direction that is in the opposite direction as he's calling me to. And so he says, this isn't like this innocent, oh, I'm just going to go check this out. No, this is a deliberate decision where I go, you know what, God, you're calling me to do this. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go there. It's active. You guys, seeking after God is, is this desire to know him, to enjoy him, to worship him. And, and, there's, and, and I think what's, what we confuse sometimes is often I'll hear people say, well, I'm open intellectually to the fact that there could be a God. Like, I'm open to it. Or uh, I, I have a conviction that there is a God. But that's not a passion to meet with God, is it? Right? Like, I mean, some people, they're motivated by the problems in their lives, right? Like, I have these problems. I don't know how to fix them. I feel guilty all the time. I feel shame. I know I need forgiveness. I know I need something else. And so I just need a higher power. I need a higher power to intervene. I've come to the end of my wisdom, my ability to get out of this uh, stressful situation. I'm confused. And so I need some mystical experience, divine wisdom from somewhere. And so then I'm open to the idea of this God. And, 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 and I would say this, that that is still driven by what God can give me. That's not seeking him. Paul's saying that, that, that literally this, this sinful self-centeredness, it controls all spiritual searching for meaning and experience so that we're going to continue to try to get these blessings from God, but we're still maintaining control and we're still expecting him at the same time to bless us, to meet our needs, to get us out of trouble, to fix our relationships and all of this. You guys, that is not choosing to worship God. 
right? That is asking God to just fix my situation. And if he doesn't, I move on. Now, you guys, here's what's so cool about this for you and for me is um, I, I look at this and I go, man, like with my life, uh, but before I was walking with the Lord, it was all driven by me. Every decision was about what, how can this benefit me? Every decision was about how can this get me further to the goal that I have? And so everything was a means to an end and the end was whatever I wanted. And, 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 and what these verses reveal is just how lost we are in that state, isn't it? We're just lost in this state. And, and as we're lost in that state, I, I actually start to see the beauty of God when I understand what is said all throughout scripture. And Jesus said it in John 6, 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so, so I read this and I go, oh my goodness, like I'm, I'm stuck in this self-centeredness and I know I was pursuing whatever I wanted to do outside of following God. And, and it's like, man, in that place, I am lost and, and, and I'm confused and, and I, I'm neglecting him. And you guys, what, what scripture tells us is that in a way that I can't comprehend, God refuses to give up on us. I mean, Jesus says, the father who sent me draws him. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You have been gifted this. In other words, when, when I was turning and wanting my own way and saying, God, yeah, I understand what you're asking. I'm not going to do it. What this is telling me is he didn't give up on me. And the fact that I'm here and I'm able to worship him is a testimony to his faithfulness and the fact that he continued to pursue me. You guys, here's what's so crazy is some of you have built up a habit, a lifestyle of denying God in your life. And he's still here saying, I love you. This is who I am. I want you, I want to adopt you. I want to give you new life. I want to transform who you are. Are you ready? Are you understanding? And what happens then is it leads us to praise God with greater gratitude. And he states also that everyone has turned aside. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Man, that's a tough one, isn't it? It's like, huh? You know, but Jesus told the rich young ruler in Mark 10, uh, there, no one is good except God alone. And and I think that we read that and we go, wait a second, no one is good. I know a lot of good people that don't want anything to do with God, right? I know a lot of people that don't worship God and yet they're doing many good things. They're using their talents, they're using their wealth uh, in, the, in kind and generous ways to make the world a better place. In fact, they're better than a lot of the Christians I know. Yeah, they're a lot nicer to me. They don't gossip about me. They love me. 
They're generous, all these things. And I don't see that from Christians. Like what, like, so what is he talking about here? We have to remember what kind of goodness Paul's talking about here, okay? Because it's different than how you and I are just reading it. His focus, once again, remember, is on our relationship to God. So, so what he's addressing here is he's answering that question, whether our good deeds can fix the broken relationship between us and a perfect and holy God, whether they can establish a righteousness on their own apart from Christ. And he says, no, there is no good deed that you could ever do that would give you right standing with a perfect and holy God. You cannot be made righteous. You can't do it yourself. And so he said, there is nobody that can do anything good enough uh, or, 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 or enough good things to receive that. Nobody is good in that way. Nobody. And, and I think what's so um, dangerous about this is the fact that many times our good deeds can take us actually further from the righteousness of God. See, how does that happen? How does that play out? The good that I do can actually deceive me into thinking I'm good enough. Because what happens is uh, I notice what I'm doing. I notice what I'm doing for other people. Uh, I think about my neighbors and, and doing something for them. And I'm like, man, they, they must think I'm a great neighbor. Uh, I, I think about what I just did for my wife. I'm like, man, she, she's, she's got a good husband. I'm doing this for my kids. Man, they have a great dad. I'm coaching this team. What a great coach he is. And, 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 and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm noticing all these things I'm doing for other people, like I like uh, how I'm serving them, how I'm blessing them, encouraging them, all of this in, in the church and outside of the church, right? And what can happen is through these good works is I start to act like those works give me right standing with God. And part of how that also plays out is I also start to notice the people who aren't doing what I'm doing. Well, they're a terrible parent. They don't love their wife like the church. They don't work hard. They don't care about their neighbors. They don't care about those people. Look what I did. And we don't say it, but we're thinking it and we're living like it's true that I am more worthy than them. I'm better than them. And I think what we need to be reminded of, there, there is going to be a time at the end when everybody's motives are going to be brought to the surface. Like God's going to get real with all of us and nobody's going to be able to run from it. And so what has been done is going to be revealed what was the intent behind it. And what we need to understand and know that when the Bible speaks to good deeds in God's sight, it's very specific about what it includes. Look at what Matthew 5, 16 says. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? You? 
right? Like, oh, they noticed me. They talked to me. They thanked me. That must have really blessed. No, it says that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? So it's, it's redefining how we read our good works, isn't it? It's asking us to go below the surface and it's asking, why am I actually even doing this in the first place? Is it for me? Is it about me? Is it to promote me? Or is it bringing glory to God? And he says, those are the good works that I'm talking about. And if you don't know God, if you're, if you're disobeying God, how in the world can you say, oh, I'm glorifying him? Like you can't. It doesn't work. And so, yeah, like people that don't know God, they may contribute to society, create some amazing things. But before God, it's not enough. And then he addresses sin's effect on our tongues or our fingertips, that type. says their throats are open graves. We are deceitful. Poison is bitter and cursing in what we say. And we see this image that is just graphic. We don't like it. It's this image of a grave with rotting bodies in it, right? Like, uh, which we don't like, but, but, but he says like, it, it's bare. It's open. In other words, uh, it is clear that, that, that you know, and, and those graves were to cover the decay, the corruption. He says, no, but what's coming out of your mouth, it is unveiling the corruption that is there. Uh, it, we are using our, our tongues. It, it's, it's poisonous what's coming out. It's bitter. It's cursing, right? And I think that when we, we think about what sin will do to what comes out of our mouths and what we say about people, uh, it's often going to uh, be under the veil of, I'm going to protect me at their expense. I'm going to damage them. And Jesus said that your words are going to reveal the condition of your heart. Right? In Matthew 12, 34, it says, You brought of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, numerous Proverbs talk about the destructive nature of the tongue, right? Uh, Proverbs 18, 21. And this is, man, this is so true. It says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Man. Is it bringing forth life or death? And I'm going to love it. And I'm going to then take of that fruit. And Paul says, sinful humanity that is unrepentant, unmoved towards God. Their throats are open graves full of corruption and infection. And I just want to tell you guys right now, guard your words carefully. And, and if you sin with your mouth against someone, apologize humbly and seek reconciliation. Guys, I'm going to tell you this one in particular, and I just feel like I need to be saying this almost weekly. We have become way too accommodating for this one. We excuse this one away in ourselves and other people way too often in Christian culture. We have uh, done such a disservice to some of these specific things that the Bible repeatedly emphasizes over and above other things, and yet we have repositioned it so that it just works for my issue, but I highlight the issues that other people struggle with, and you cannot run from the power of your tongue. 
Like the Bible is so clear on what it will do, the destruction, the wake uh, that, that it will lead. And so I can't plead with you enough like, just humbly apologize to the person that you've hurt, that you've gossiped about. Seek reconciliation, uh, because then he carries it into our relationships, right? He says, it's not going to stay with your mouth. It is then going to impact your relationships. He says, we're swift to shed blood, and ruin and misery mark our ways and the way of peace we don't know. Man, that's, that's pretty rough to read. So, so sin is going to cause us not only to speak about each other in ways that we shouldn't, but it's going to cause us to then go after each other, sometimes literally. Now, I think one of the interesting things is we have to actually ask, why do we become angry with people? Have you ever thought about that? Why do I get angry? And for some of us, why do I get angry so often? And, and I think that there's some, there's some, you know, clear things, right? Like, I, I think in some cases, they've compromised the life I want to have or I believe I deserve to have. They've damaged me in some way, so I'm angry at them. They have prevented me from experiencing something. They've made me feel awful. They've said something about me. Maybe they have something I want. Maybe they're enjoying a relationship that I deserve to have or should have, but they have it. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, if we don't live enjoying God's approval in the gospel and the gospel alone, we will not experience peace. We'll never experience it in our lives. Um, nor will we experience peace with other people. Like not only is that peace going to rot my soul and rob me and be poisoned, but it's also then going to carry out into my relationships with other people. I think that's a great lie from the enemy of, hey, just it's just your thing. It's never just your thing. And, and your anger is never, like you may think you're good at hiding it, but you're not, right? I shared last week how my, my son like called me out and I'm like, huh? Where is this coming from? You know, like, and he's literally saying, you're not fooling anybody, dad, right? And, and, and so I think that we have to uh, understand and realize that one of the things that is dangerous about anger, and I just spoke on anger to uh, a bunch of our college students at a college retreat like four weeks ago, and, and I came away with this incredible truth that anger boils down to I didn't get what I wanted. Now, you may be justified, right? You may have had something done to you, said about you. You may be a victim. And, and that is very real and very true. But ultimately, I'm upset because you've taken this from me. You didn't give me what I deserve. That wasn't fair. And, and, and so we act out. And I'll tell you this right now, you guys. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. Sin always leaves a trail of pain, heartache, restlessness, not peace, not the fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul finishes by stating how sin then, it affects our relationship with God. He says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. 
And he's summarizing here everything he said from verse 10 on. You guys, the fear of God is a central concept in the Bible. Uh, we're told uh, over and over again, but in Psalm 111, 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And so um, it's the starting point, right? It's the starting point for everything else. And I think we, we, we just ask, what is the fear of God? What is that? And, and, and the psalmist says something very surprising in Psalm 130, verses three and four. It says this, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Interesting. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, I've never connected those two before. But, but what, is, what is he talking about here? Uh, he fears because God forgives? Like, like no, he, the, you are so amazed at the power of God that it is able to forgive any and everybody from any possible sin that, that all of a sudden you're amazed at the power simply and solely to forgive. And because of that power, you stand, you don't stand, get on your knees, in awe of an incredible, almighty, all-powerful God whose characteristics stand far and above and beyond and over us. And so for me to fear God, it doesn't mean every day, every mistake, every sin, I'm like, oh, honey, I think God heard that. What are we going to do? I'm so afraid. Now, there does need to be some healthy fear. Amen? Right? So it's like, ah, whatever, Grace. You know, but no, there is this reverential awe that it's touching on when it says his power through forgiveness. And so I am to have this reverential awe of my perfect and holy Savior, and I am to carry that throughout the day. I'm to consider that. I'm to meditate on that. I am to allow that to drive how I live and think, act, and talk. And Paul says that is the antidote, is to keep that in front of you. And then he closes in verses 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's saying, listen, every person, every believer is under God's law and is accountable to him. And so the response my pushback is, well, it's not there. It's silence. No one has an argument. We're all guilty. In the presence of God, there is no defense that I have apart from Jesus Christ. And so in verse 20, Paul ends with, with clarifying the purpose of the law. He says, the law isn't given to us so that by observing it, we'd be declared righteous. No, 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 that, you're, you're seeing it from the wrong lens. It's through the law that we actually become aware of our sin. It's through the law that I'm, I'm exposed for how guilty I am. It shows me how unworthy I am. It's literally been given to me so that I would know that I can't be good enough. I'm unrighteous. 
And, and I'm reminded again that what keeps people from salvation often isn't so much their sins, but their good works. And if we come to God telling him that we're good, offering him our works as righteousness, it means that we are unwilling to accept or, re- or receive the righteousness that he and he alone can give. And so what's our response? We need to give up our morality, our goodness, and we just need to repent of our religiosity as well as our rebellion. And we, need to just, we just need to come to the Lord with open hands, with silent mouths, and just receive his righteousness. A righteousness that only could be given to us through the work of Jesus on the cross for you and for me, amen? And you guys, this is why I also wanna just say this. We have to deal with pride. We have to. Pride is so dangerous. And it's another one of those things that we have allowed to just become acceptable. We even celebrate it sometimes. You guys, the Bible is clear. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. Proverbs 15, he tears down the house of the pride. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before a fall. You guys, pride tells you, it tells me that I'm good that I'm okay, that I don't need to repent, that I don't need the righteousness of God. Uh, that, and so pride will absolutely destroy your ability to turn back to God because pride continues to tell me I'm good. And so you guys, we have to pray. We have to come before the Lord, just uh, mouths closed, open hands. And we gotta say, God, break me of this pride. Break it out of me. Because I find more and more, I'm justifying my behavior because I'm good or I do enough. And he says, Steve, just get on your knees before me and acknowledge that you need me. You can't do it. And guys, when you get to that point, he meets you there, picks you up, and he gives you his righteousness. Amen? And you are declared worthy for the first time in your life. And that is worthy of praise. Let's pray.